Hi, I'm Peter Holaska. Troy Bergen. Rudy Brown. Rachel Erickson. And this is episode three of our podcast series comparing the legal systems of France and the United States. And Troy's going to get us started off talking about the legal society of both countries as a whole. Thanks, Pete. So we know quite intimately that the United States is not an overly litigious society. Though it may seem like it at times, the United States does not engage in hyper-litigious practices. Of course, you have your hands full of citizens who bring cases that are not necessarily backed up with proper evidentiary procedure or necessary at all. The fact of the matter is, bringing litigation to court or further is difficult for a handful of reasons. Cost. Cost of litigation can be extremely high. And depending on the, t- the specific type of case, with an accusation, there must be fact and evidence beyond a reasonable doubt to believe that you are owed compensation. It's a very lengthy and time-consuming process with serious consequences, sometimes in the form of payment. Other times, you could maybe lose your job. You could, you could suffer some of your personal life, some of your personal life um, experience or some of your personal life can be affected by whatever case you're going through. There, there are many claims that America is a litigious society because of how much we spend in relation to 2.2% per, uh, 2. 2% of our GDP, which is roughly $310 billion a year, or about $1,000 for each person in the country, on towards, um, toward claims. And there's no arguing that spending-wise, we are much higher than any other country, but it includes the cost of tort litigation and damages paid in full to all victims. And half of that is for transaction costs and legal fees, mostly, things of that nature. What is, what is a litigious society? What do we define as overly litigious? Well, upon research, I found that a litigious society is a disputatious or contentious societal nation or state that is prone to engage in lawsuits or be subject to litigation of frivolous nature sometimes. And does America fit that bill? That's like a big question I'm trying to answer in this um, podcast discussion. On most accounts, political scientists and law journalists agree that America, America's litigious society reputation is a myth. Despite stories like the McDonald's hot coffee lawsuit, Americans don't sue all the time. And companies use that fear of the legal worst to spread data like the McDonald's case around to their advantage. According to recent data on a poll for claims court, only 10% of injured Americans file claims for compensation and 2% follow, uh, filed lawsuits. Excuse me. And the question is, who do you know who can afford, who can afford to sue all the time? the myth has been successfully propagated. The the infamous McDonald's coffee spilling case, and the question is, um, excuse me, the myth has been successfully propagated. The coffee spilling case was in the news this week and it's been over 20 years since the settlement, and yet the story's uh, still being told today. And a lot of it does have to do with politics. So those who argue for tort reform are usually leaning on the right, who a lot of times they are protecting giant corporations from the little guy who's out to get them or impose more restrictions on the freedom of movement. And cases tried out, an example of Americans' addiction to frivolous lawsuits. It's kind of a play on 
on the system. As if to say, like, wow, we're so obsessed with, you know, going to court and trying to get money for free. You know, but, but really, in the McDonald's case, a lot of things are overlooked because of what she won. People start to think, like, dang, she really lucked out. But really, really, she wasn't an opportunist at all. She didn't just get a multi-million dollar payout for absolutely nothing. She was an 81-year-old woman who spilled scalding hot coffee and suffered third-degree third burns over 6% of her body. And she only sued for $20,000 to cover medical expenses. And McDonald's, as big corporations do, refused to settle, and the jury awarded her a much larger payout of $2.7 million, and eventually she ended up with about $600,000 to spend for the rest of her life and being subject to ridicule with scars and all sorts of stuff. But tort cases represent just 4.4% of civil caseloads and the percentage that has been steadily declining um, over the years. Ford um, caseloads dropped by a quarter excuse me, I'm sorry, we're not really all that litigious if we continue to be treated um, with past, with past st statistics and qualitative data that has been declining over the years. So the next time we hear litigious America or the United States is lawsuit happy, we should really think again because I just read about David Engel, who debunked, who debunked this commonly held belief that I'm going over right now, that injured Americans have their attorney on speed dial. His book is called The Myth of the Litigious Society, Why We Don't Sue. The distinguished, the distinguished professor explores the reasons why most injury victims don't seek redress for their suffering instead they rely on their own sources and family and friends and government programs for 90 percent of all injured people uh, for all injured cases they lump their losses and it's a good reason to think that the law is on their side still people make no claim against their injury or their injuries uh, insurance companies approximately four percent hire lawyers and only three percent two or three percent of all injury victims end up bringing a tort action. Um, he names several reasons of why people may not bring cases to court. Popular culture and media betray, uh, portray um, people who sue in a bad light. So uh, they suggest on, in TV that uh, those who bring action towards, uh, towards other people or try to get money, um, that they're the worst kind of people and that um, it's somehow reprehensible that their lawyers are even worse. There's a lot of feeling, um, you know, bad will towards injury victims uh, that like they don't want to be that type of person, you know. Um, is it difficult for people in pain to think clearly? Yeah, you, you bet it, yeah. Like it's, it, they're in, conf you know, they're in confusion, they, They're in confusion, you know, they can't really think well. It's hard for them to, you know, take care of themselves, let alone bring, you know, an action against someone and then go through it, like, all sorts of, like, litigation and civil 
procedure. They got to show up and they got to, you know, send what not, you know, and like get all these documents and get all this proof. And then also, there's a widespread of tendency for victims to blame themselves for their injuries. Like, ah, oh man, if I hadn't been there, you know, like this wouldn't have happened to me. Um, cultural surroundings make injuries seem really natural. Like, if, like we can't solve them. So there was a, a case where, um, several cases where people were backing over children in their driveway, they would just hit young children and everybody thought that was kind of unavoidable until a parent-led lobbying company or a, it was a lobbying uh, thing and they, uh, they went to Congress and said that it, it could be easily prevented by exercising greater care and that's where our, our, our cameras in the back of our cars come from. That campaign implemented a system where we're now, it's now necessary for you to have a camera that can see in the back of your car when you're in reverse to prevent, you know, certain safety issues that, you know, we deal with all the time. It wasn't like they were just like, oh man, we could really make some money here and change the world. You know, they really, it was kind of a, a need. Um, honestly, there needs to be a cultural shift uh, in how we view America as an extremely litigious society going. So you kind of mentioned all these statistics on mm -hmm. what really makes a litigious society. And so what's your opinion between the United States and France? Which do you believe is more of a litigious society? Well, France, I would say, is not a litigious society and is not even close to being as litigious as America. Um, America is much larger in population. Our money is, you know, much larger. Now, France, is, France uses the euro, which is worth more, but we have, you know, more people and more land, and there's more businesses here, and there's more companies, so there's more chances for us to bring a case, even though we're more likely to refuse help. I just did quotations for those who can't see me. But uh, we're more likely to refuse help, but even, but even though, you know, even that, we still have more people, so it's, we're going to be considered or perceived as a more litigious society. Um, France is not known to, to pursue unnecessary litigation, but it is number eight on the scale of most litigious societies in the entire world. Um, the U.S. is actually ranked number one, but... Even then, we still can't call ourselves a litigious society anymore because there are so many factors that I actually mentioned pre previously. Um, please, yes. So why do you think people see us as a litigious society? Well, it's, it's because of those, uh, you know, those kind of, those crazy cases that you hear about where someone made it big with these companies. Also, there are so many large companies and they do so many terrible things. Um, right, I'm not saying right wingers, I'm people who usually represent these companies painted out in a bad light. They painted out that, you know, we're so obsessed with, with, uh, 
with, you know, litigation when really we're, we're not, you know, and we're more likely to choose, you know, just kind of toughing it out or, you know, there's time and money that goes into these cases. So depending on, um, on recent studies, you know, um, there's a million lawyers, 1,116,967, give or take, practicing in the United States. Depending on what law they're practicing, um, it's about one lawyer for every 300 people. Now in France, that equals out to, you know, like 23,000 lawyers uh, that they have pretty much practicing, give or take. And that's about 41% of French lawyers. Um, one lawyer for 1,403 people. So if you can like kind of compare those two, you know, yes, um, we're basic, we're in population wise, you can kind of see it, right? It makes more sense for us to be viewed as a litigious society because we need more lawyers, we need more judges, we need more courts, we need all this stuff. Um, and France, they don't need as much. So France, there's only like 12 lawyers or 12 judges per 100,000 people. 72 lawyers per 100,000 people, you know, 7.4% of the value of their GDP um, is, you know, insurance, or 0.93, excuse me. That's, um, there's a lot of information on the internet regarding France litigation process, but there's not so much on how often they pursue litigation um, as a people. And they use a civil law process instead of a common law, so that affects it too. Essentially, their litigation process is filed through their lawyers, you know, written submissions, and then lawyers may claim oral advocacy and relatively minor role in civil litigation. Indeed, the courts virtually never hand down a decision on that day, so litigation can take a number of weeks, if not months, and a hearing decision is usually written, so it always takes more and more time, like I am right now. So, <laughs> and in civil cases, um, there aren't a lot of juries. In fact, there, um, there are no juries. Um, before the civil courts, and large-scale damages are virtually basically un unheard of. So there is basically with what little information I could surmise on the internet, without sufficient proper poll statistics or qualitative data, I can, I can come to my own conclusion that without you know, large-scale damage claims, France, you know, they're probably less likely to pursue litigation. You're not gonna be making $175,000, you know, if you get you know, if you stub your toe, that's not gonna happen. So it's like, there's no incentive, if you will. Um, and it's not possible to bring a class action for French civil courts. An oral examination of a witness does not exist either for a matter to come to a trial. At first instance, can take up to uh, two years. And there is often similar delay and decision is not always subject to an appeal the lower, the lower court, the first incident, is called the tribunal dance, 
or no, um, it's the TGI basically. It's in French and I didn't write it down. Uh, excuse me for that. But France is a relatively um, wealthy country. Um, it's not, you know, it's not incredibly poor. It's 21st on the GDP, so they actually have more money to. They have more money to bring litigation and fund courts, but that's not to say that average citizens are going to be more um, more inclined to show up and go through the procedure. There is one more thing that I'd like to bring up. Um, in France, the idea of a hyper-litigious behavior uh, individual is well known, and it comes from a 19th century uh, concept that French psychiatrists made up, specifically Henry uh, Teguet. He, he said that he could, he said that he could basically tell when someone was hyper litigious or showing hyper litigious behavior was relentless activity, outstanding tenacity, personal elation, abusive logic, and intellectual, oftenly physical resilience and graphomia. Now that kind of picked up and so then he coined a phrase that they are persecuted persecutors. And that really gained a lot of popularity. So now the idea in French, you know, repeated and regurgitated by French scholars generally, most people believe there that you are taking advantage of the system mm -hmm. if you pursue uh, litigation, if you overly pursue it. And so it's kind of looked down upon even when someone can, you know, clearly see that you're injured, their interpretation of it is going to be like, oh, yeah, you want money for this, huh? You know? And so I do think, I tend to agree with the ideas of the American litigant society for several reasons. Because it is looked down upon to bring hyper-litigious claims to court. Though it is looked down upon to bring hyper-litigious claims to court, it is important that the specific situation and case... Um, case reasons differ. You can, in, in America, we still value, um, you know, equal, equal representation. Like everybody having their day in court, please. Right? Yes, yeah. exactly. Thank you. Thank you. I'm running out of brain power here. Um, and then potential payouts are much bigger. Uh, there are larger corporations in the U.S., so... Litigation, it makes more sense in the U.S., but that's not necessarily to say that we are an over-litigious society. Yeah. Now, I will be introducing Rudy. He will be explaining... I'll be explaining debt collection. So getting to what you were saying about money and when it comes to litigious society and everybody thinking, oh, all these people want is money, all people desire is money... Well, people might desire money, but not all the time they will have it. So when people overuse what they have, it'll go into debt collection. So in the US, debt collection is usually is handled by a debt collector who will first try to make a plan with you, try to see how you can pay something off. But in the end, if you are just avoiding them, not trying to pay your debts back, it'll usually be sold to a third party and that third party will usually buy it for pennies on the dollar just so they can make a little extra cash. 
Whereas in France, there's two types or two stages. There's recovery or legal procedures. And pretty much what happens is first they try to collect what you owe or they'll try to negotiate something to where they will get partial parts of their money back. But if that doesn't work, they'll go into the legal processes of trying to receive all their money back. And usually in France, you'll have to deal with a lawyer when it comes to that. Um, so pretty much how it starts in the U.S., it'll first start with, it'll first start with you'll deal with the agency which you first got your loan or got credit card from. They'll try to get the money back from you, but if that doesn't work, as I said earlier, they'll usually sell it to a third-party company as it'll be sold for pennies on the dollar, and then they'll start contacting you. And after a while, you'll probably get annoyed with that you ask them to stop, and that's one of the requirements. If you ask them to stop contacting you, they must stop contacting you. Why okay. do you think that that's a requirement? Well, there is a group. I forgot the group's name. I think it was F... What was it? FDPCA, I believe it was. Mm. And they've set guidelines to where debt collectors can't call you consistently, and that's to pretty much protect the debtor's right or the consumer's right to having their privacy. So like uh, like protection against harassment? Yeah. yeah, so that's pretty much what it gets into. It's pretty much protecting the consumer over the debtor who's repeatedly doing this, mm-hmm. also known as the one-shotter versus the repeat player. Go ahead. Well, so if you tell them to stop contacting you, do you have to have a reason, right? Like they must contact your lawyer now because, I mean, it's not like the debt goes away, right? No, the debt doesn't go away. But they, you do not have to give them a reason why. And they also can't contact your family. They could ask if you are present so they can talk to you, but they can't spread your information out to everybody because then that would be a violation of rights that are given to you. So then how do they continue pursuing to collect their debt? So what they can do is they can file with the court to have a hearing. And once they file, they have to pretty much give you a summonings and if you do not answer that within, I believe it's 20 days, um, then they can go to a default judgment or get a motion for default judgment. And pretty much that means you don't have to go to, they don't have to go to trial. They can just have the judge base his decision off of you not being there and they will be able to get their money back from you. So in a sense, I think it's harder not harder, I feel like it's more difficult in the U.S. for the person who's barely going through this once because you don't know all the proper steps, you don't know what will help you in the end. Whereas in France, I think it's more they try to help you in the sense where they're trying to settle your debt and also they consistently remind you like, hey, you know, like we're sending you a reminder, we're gonna start we're going to start getting your assets to collect our debt back. Whereas in the U.S., you can just straight get a wage garnishment by them filing. And they get automatically get 25% of your check unless you have what's called, unless you're given aid by the government. Also, another thing in the U.S., you can get a bank garnishment. And pretty much means if there's just money that's randomly sitting in your bank account that has not majority come from your check, they can just automatically take it or also known as freezing your bank account. Whereas in France, they give you multiple warnings, they tell you that what they're gonna do, and they can also see stuff that's not money. They can seize items and stuff like that. 
Go ahead. I mean, I don't know if you know this, but um, is there like a limit or like a, uh, is there a, is there, yeah, like a limit to what they can seize? You know, there are some things that hold religious value or, you know, personal value. You know, so, um, well, I know in France they have to get it um, approved by a judge before they seize the item that they want to seize. But in the U.S., I believe they just go strictly for money. Money, cars, or anything you put, like, a lien on or just something similar to that. So in that sense, I feel like France has a better system because a judge has... The judge has the final judgment on saying, like, oh, well, this person sees this as a religious item, as you said. So I feel like they have a lot more discretion when it comes to that. Because you can't expect a person to say, oh, I'm going to take this person's car. And so what are they going to do when they have to go to work to make money to help pay that off? So I feel France is better in that sense. Go ahead, Pete. Which system do you think is more effective to like actually collecting the debt? I think France is. Because in a sense, the U.S., we install fear into people. And fear makes people roll up in a shell. Whereas France is trying to take action by saying okay what can you do to mm-hmm. help settle this debt and they'll send multiple things but they won't they won't do it in the sense like okay if you don't do this we're going to do this or they don't surprise attack you by doing wage garnishments or bank garnishments i feel yeah i feel like france is a lot easier kind of mm-hmm. just going around with it so when implementing like a plan of action does france like how how much do they work with you well, they work with you in the sense that they'll try to help you, but if you're just consistently just saying, no, I'm not going to pay it, or just consistently avoiding them, that's when they'll go into the legal processes. And with that, we will be going to a, another type of alternative dispute resolution, which is going to be by Pete. Yep, so uh, I will be focusing on probably the uh, two most common forms of alternative dispute resolution, which are mediation and arbitration. In uh, mediation, uh, the mediator negotiates with both sides in order to reach a compromise that will satisfy the claims of each that each of the parties that uh, are having this dispute. And the exact method of mediation varies from mediator to mediator, but it is always focused on finding the middle ground that will serve both parties and settle a dispute. And this is non-binding and is uh, just more focused about trying to reach a uh, easy decision with the help of a neutral third party who doesn't really have an interest one way or the other. And so the French legal definition of mediation is the structured process whereby two or more parties attempt to resolve a dispute by themselves to reach an agreement on the settlement of their dispute with the assistance of a mediator chosen by the parties or named by the judge. And in this process, the mediator does not take sides or give advice, but supports the parties involved to explore, explore solutions that can bring their case to a mutually beneficial settlement. So basically the goal of mediation is to reach a decision that both sides are uh, satisfied with one way or the other and mediation services are used in France to settle in all areas of law, including civil, commercial, and employment law disputes. 
and it can actually sometimes be directed by the court and is then referred to as court-annexed mediation. But it still has the same objective of bringing the parties involved to a successful agreement that avoids further court procedures that can bog down the already busy courts. And in the United States, uh, the laws that govern mediation vary greatly to greatly between each state. Some states have uh, clear expectations for certification, ethical standards, and confidentiality of mediation agreements and the process as a whole. And some actually also exempt mediators from testifying in cases they've worked on. However, such laws only cover activity within the court system, so that confidentiality does not really extend that far. And uh, community, community and commercial mediators practicing outside the court system may not have the same legal protections. Um, and the other major form of ADR is arbitration. And in the process of arbitration, somebody called an arbiter reviews the or arbitrator reviews the case as presented to them by both parties and then issues their own decision as to which side is right. And the arbitrator can be an expert in the topic at hand or uh, anybody that the court decides is appropriate to handle this. And arbitration can be binding or non-binding. And in the case of it being binding, a party cannot appeal the decision unless they can prove the arbiter was, was biased towards the opposition. And in a non-binding non arbitration, either party can discard the arbiter and litigate. Non-binding arbitration is actually very similar to uh, mediation, but the main difference is that uh, the arbitrator is actually giving their opinion on what exactly the outcome of the case should be. And in the French system, they actually also have somebody called the supporting judge which is uh, the judge with the authority to issue orders related to a particular arbitration and, and kind of represents the interests of the state within that whole process. And the whole goal of ADR is to try and keep as many cases out of the court system as possible, just so like if, if a case can be resolved using a method that isn't a courtroom, that would that uh, saves time and money for the parties and the government in pretty much uh, all circumstances. So what's, what type of ADR do you think is most effective or helps people that don't really have the money to go to court? I think that uh, there are really a lot of benefits to arbitration because like in in the case that uh, Troy was talking about earlier with the McDonald's hot coffee spilling McDonald's did not want to admit any fault at all and they were I think they were only like uh, they offered to settle but it was like $300 or something like that and so that's not a realistic uh, kind of thing and I don't think that the just solution that kind of came up with a, like uh, came with that settlement could be reached with just a mediator who isn't able to give their opinion or give a binding decision. So 
like the, a binding arbitration, I think in that case would be way more beneficial for just uh, the rule of law and access to justice in general. And so overall, I think that ADR is a really important process and uh, should be explored like as much as possible. And uh, now we're gonna be moving on to landlord-tenant law. Yeah, so I'm gonna be talking about landlord-tenant law and I'm gonna begin with um, talking about how landlord and tenant law works under the French system. So in France, you have two options when it comes to property, and that's either buying or renting. And typically, it's a lot easier to rent in France just because there's more properties available for rent versus buying. When buying a property in France, you will run into high transaction costs of like 16% or higher. So um, renting a property tends to be cheaper also. In order to rent a property in France, um, there's a few things you have to do. The first thing would be to confirm if the property is furnished or unfurnished. So in France, you are able to rent a property that comes with bedding, um, like a stove, kitchen equipments like microwave, oven, fridge, freezer, table seats, lighting, and storage or unfurnished where it comes with none of that. And here in the US, you have those same options. You can get apartments or houses that don't come with any of these items, but most often in the US, you'll normally get something that has one or two of these items. The next step when renting a property in France is to determine the length of the term you're gonna be living. And so there's short-term and long-term tenancies Um, But when you're looking at renting an unfurnished property, there's a three-year minimum basis. So typically you have to rent the property for at least three years if it's being rented out as unfurnished. And if it's furnished, you can have a one-year lease. Um, A short-term tenancy is for only furnished properties. And that you can rent for... Typically, they run for a month or less, and that's because of, like, tourism and, like, people that come to France um, or for students. You can have an apartment or house for a short period of time rather than renting it out for a whole year and not living there the whole time. And then long-term tenancies are for both furnished and unfurnished properties, and those are rented for six months to a year before the contracts have to be renewed. Um, And then so when we're looking at contracts in France, you have to look at what's necessary in order to sign a rental contract. And um, there's four main like key components that you need in order to sign the contract. And the first one is identity documents. So you need to have an ID, passport, driver's license, or some sort of visa information. Um, You need to have proof of professional activity. So basically saying that you um, are gonna be living in this on this property under a work contract with the employer's reference, or um, if you are a student, you need to have a student card showing that you are living on the property to study, or a business statement if you are owning or running a business or you expect to own or run a business. You need to have proof of financial support, um, typically the last three months pay slips or previous tax returns, or proof of a student scholarship. Um, Some 
different landlords will ask for more than three months pay slips, but they can't, uh, typically they need at least three in order to show that you have the financial means to live on the property. And then lastly, references of previous renting. And this is only if you've rented in France before. So if you rented in another country or in a different state, um, you don't need to have references. And then typically, um, once it comes to the point of signing the contract, you won't sign it until the day um, your tenancy starts or the day before. So how contracts are renewed in France is if you provide no notice to your landlord, your contract will be automatically renewed unless you give them some sort of notice that you are wanting to terminate the tenancy or add another party. Um, one unique thing about landlord-tenant law in France is that the landlord may require a home insurance policy to mitigate the risks of water damages, theft of contents, fire outbreaks, explosion. And the proof of the insurance is typically shown on the first rent and sub subsequently every year after the renewal of the policy so far as the tenant is still involved in the contract. And then um, the, another thing really unique about landlord-tenant law in France is you must ask for what taxes you have to be paying when you sign the contract because otherwise landlords will just include the price and then you won't be knowing like why you're paying so much extra money unless you ask them to state what the taxes are for. So they're legally allowed to add whatever costs that they see, you know, fair? Um, in a sense, but at the same time, they can't really add any costs because it has to, like, they can't just charge you for no reason. There has to be a legal means to why they're they charging you. Right. Um, and then so for the United States, um, leasing and renting is a bit different. You can get a periodic ten tenancy or a definite term lease. Periodic tenancies um, usually are shorter periods. <coughs> and the definite term leases typically is for a year or more. And then same with France, the contract is renewed every year unless you provide notice that you want to terminate the lease or um, add another party to the residence. Um, but one really big thing that comes with landlord and tenant law, especially in the United States, is having everything in a written contract um, because it's just important to have like the documents because otherwise you could end up not living in a place that you believe you live in. Um, so the definite term leases, like I said, are six months to a year. And then um, there is several different length restrictions on certain kinds of leases. Um, you can get a lease for more than a year if, if you want to um, sign on to like for more than a year. However, it has to be a definite term lease, not a periodic lease, because those typically go for a few months and you pay month to month on a periodic lease where where definitely it's like you can pay everything in full or however you choose to pay for the property. Um, some rights that come with the landlord-tenant law, like 
rights for the tenant include to have the right to their privacy. So the landlord must ask consent before accessing the property. And this goes for both France and the United States. They have to give some kind of good faith notice that they're gonna be entering the property um, just as to protect the right to privacy. Both places, the United States and France, have to offer decency of accommodation. So meaning they can't give you a place that's unlivable. It has to um, be able to be a property that can be rentable and easily livable on. Um, and then some landlord rights include the right to access the accommodation to carry out repairs, but that of course is with the consent of the tenant. Um, the right to access the property to collect rent again with the consent of the tenant because landlords cannot enter the property even though they own the properties just because um, they aren't currently living on that residence. Um, they also have other rights that include carrying out routine repairs and to carry out structural work after having stopped for the consent once again. Um, some rental conditions that most contracts include in France are the right to a decent lodging. So it has to be closed, covered, and in good repair. So that kind of goes with having a decent accommodation. The right to use your lodge as you see fit. So a landlord cannot prevent you from having another person living in there or charging you extra for the rent. So you could have a friend come live with you in that apartment and they don't pay your landlord directly, but you can have them pay you. And that's only something you can do in the in France, not in the United States. Um, landlords cannot prohibit you from having pets of any kind in France, which is really different from the United States because typically most landlords won't allow pets in their buildings unless they're for like emotional support or something along those lines. Um, the right to pay only the agreed upon rent and utilities. The landlord is required to pay for repairs and agency fees related to the rental. However, in the United States, landlords can make you pay for like any damages you cause if they are severe. And that's why it's so important in the United States when you um, rent an apartment, especially in Minnesota apartment or house or whatever kind of building you are leasing, that you um, fill out the sheets in the lease that allow you to mark down any damages that are so you aren't paying for those fees later on. And uh, one other big thing to recognize between the United States and France is that there's no specific like set of guidelines for landlord-tenant law in the United States because each state has their own different set of rules and their own laws for landlords and rights for tenants, etc. Whereas in France, it's just one same simple, um, every right has to be followed by every landlord in the country. And uh, so that's all for our third podcast. Thanks for listening.